So, Kim, this has been a this has been quite a good couple of days. Absolutely, certainly. absolutely. We've had some great, great speakers. We've got some really critical topics. Whoops! You just... There we go. <laughs> some critical topics that we're going to go to the hill about tomorrow. Um, we're about to embark on the autonomous vehicle conversation, which is hugely important to our community to make sure that we don't get squeezed out of the access to autonomous vehicles because they're coming right. and we want to use them too. So, um, But I think the, the diabetes work that we're going to do is just groundbreaking because right. there's just hundreds of thousands of people in this country that are, you know, diabetic, either type 1 or type 2, right. um, and are able are not able to you know adequately manage their own health care because of the lack of accessibility right. of monitors and and testing equipment and and um, we yeah, talked a lot about the uh, the new um, freelance libre right. system right. Um, that is being used by by folks because it has compatibility with iPhones right but but the monitor that comes with this whole package, is not accessible. So if you don't have an iPhone, then you can't use this um, freelance Libre system, which is a non, you know, you don't have to do the traditional poke your finger, run, right. a, run a blood right. test, right. Um, because yeah, it's a continuous um, glucose monitoring system. That right, and, and one of the folks mentioned that, you know, it's great once you get it going, but you have to calibrate it at first, and to calibrate it, you've got to do that visually. Right. So, so there's always, you know, there are these things that, you know, always present some some form of barrier. Right. I thought I thought Jeff did a phenomenal job um, on the panel explaining things this oh, morning. He did a and great job. Exactly, the the three gentlemen that were on the panel this morning really contributed a lot of um, information. They've been working a long time, Tom Tobin, Chris Gray, and Jeff Bishop, on access for um, people who are blind and are also diabetic. So I think this is going to be really, really important for us. And we had a conversation that it's not just, you know, the equipment for diabetics. We, we absolutely realize that there's other equipment out there that is not accessible. Right. Asthma monitoring systems and, and just there's so many devices, um, you know, cholesterol monitoring devices and testing equipment and yeah. the other diagnostic right. type and, equipment. And, and, so. and, the, and the weird dichotomy here is like what Paul was saying, you know, there are literally tens and tens and tens of blood pressure machines that talk. There are. I recently did a search. I was trying to help somebody find one that was accessible and there right. on Amazon there were just dozens of them. Right. So obviously they're not uh, they must not be subject to some of the regulatory stuff that other folks are. Yeah. And just to slap the word talking in front of them maybe all they do is is say what you know what the final outcome is but who knows what they're saying right, um, right maybe they don't give the pulse but they give your blood pressure or vice versa i wonder how many people use you know leverage ira for this kind of stuff i would expect it might be a consideration i'll have to ask that question yeah, I because i think so too this is interesting to me and since i just did this search and i made some recommendations about well i've heard this one this one and this one are accessible um, including the one that my family owns 
Um, I've been falling back on the one my family owns because I know it works. Right. But, you know, the ones that really are not working are the ones that have some kind of interface with a smartphone. Right. And I think it's it's a little bit of a gimmick that they're saying, well, it talks and it can do this because they, right. they really did not talk. There was not the kind of accessibility we were expecting. Right. So... And know some of the devices that people can use these days, you don't even realize they're available for home use. I recently purchased one of those little finger clips like you get used whenever you go visit your doctor that takes your pulse right. and it's your an, oxygen levels. What it's an oximeter. Oximeter. It's yeah. an oximeter, that you, little thing on your finger. That's right. You stuck it on my finger the other day when that's I was on right. That's right. Now... <laughs> I have a situation with AFib from time to time to time, and my only purpose in getting this was that if I felt odd, because uh, AFib can feel rather peculiar to say the least, your heart. <laughs> Let's just say odder than usual. Odder, odder than, than usual. usual. That's yes. right. Thank you very much, <laughs> uh, my team. I can we're count on we're you. happy to support you. Thank yes. you so much. Anyway, uh, so all I wanted it to do was to be able to put it on my finger and know whether or not I was having an AFib. I can't use or access the information on oxygen absorption. I can listen to the beeps that represent my pulse, but I can't read what my pulse actually is. Right. I'm only using it to alarm me if I should be, in fact, alarmed because I'm having an AFib. Right. So, accessibility, we in the blindness community have been taught from our beginnings to find a way to do a workaround. But the fact of the matter is that many of our workarounds are less effective than if we had true access to things. One of the gentlemen this morning, Chris actually, Chris Gray said he was told that his accessible um, continuous glucose monitoring device was would be 70% um, accurate. accurate. Do you want your health care to be 70% accurate? Exactly. I don't exactly. think so. I think you're looking for more like a 99 or 100% accurate. I don't want to take any chances with my health care. I remember when I was diagnosed as a type 2 diabetic, I was told I needed to have my blood sugar taken twice a day, and they would be happy to accommodate me by having me come to the lab twice a day. Rather than teaching you. Rather than finding an accessible glucose monitor mm -hmm. for me and providing it to me like they would any other sighted patient in their practice. Then there, then there was one I think Jeff was talking about where you take it and then they call you. Can you imagine? That, yeah. That's a bizarre Gee, way to do it. Yeah. It's, it's like an <laughs> I, agent, you know? Yeah. Exactly. Not not what we mean by things. Just like we were just... But but, but that could be a use of artificial intelligence, though, okay. right? Seriously. Yeah. Well, and they Possibly. Can. Yeah. There's yeah. all kinds of ways for us to be doing these kinds of things. Stop and think about that same idea of how connected you need to be to get something done. The, the woman who was talking about her cable service and that she was in this dead zone of 800 feet and... She couldn't use an accessible set-top box because she needed to have internet service, not just hardwired cable service, to be able to do that. And I, I absolutely understand what, what's going on there. <laughs> but how connected do you need to be? 
Yeah. Well, I think we need to let right. Dolly and the president go. I am going to step away and get ready to thank reconvene. You very much, but thank you for giving me the chance to yeah, sit thanks, down thanks and have a by. conversation. Autonomous vehicles. I know that's a very popular topic for those of us in the blind and visually impaired community. Um, so we have two panelists who are going to speak to us today, and I'll introduce both of them. Um, so our first panelist is Reagan Payne from General Motors, who's been working uh, in this area and talking about the AV Start Act and things of those natures, what we're talking about and trying to get um, more movement out there to get AV um, research done, get them on the roads, just move, push them forward or drive them forward, I should say. Um, and then our second speaker is Carol Tyson from Dreadif from Disability rights and she's going to be talking about kind of the implications for the disabled community and what's been going on and advocating for autonomous vehicles as well um, so we have kind of both perspectives they're each going to take turns to speak and then as previous um, presentations we'll have time for Q&A as well um, so we'll go ahead and let Reagan speak great thanks so much can everyone hear me no how about now? Great. <laughs> well, first of all, I just want to say hello and, and thank everyone for uh, welcoming me to, to join your group today. Um, I'm from Missouri. I didn't know if anyone here is from Missouri. Awesome. Well, we'd we'll, love to connect with my fellow Missourians after this. <laughs> Let's see. So, um, like Claire said, I'm with General Motors, and uh, we're, we're really excited at GM about kind of the future of transportation. Because when you observe societal megatrends and how they're evolving, Cities and transportation today are a lot different than where they were a few decades ago or even a few years ago. Our CEO, Mary Barra, has said that transportation will change more in the next five years than it has changed in the past 50 years. So at this pivotal moment in time, companies like GM have the opportunity to combine our knowledge of manufacturing, Silicon Valley technology, and commitment to safety to provide new and innovative mobility solutions to more people. So General Motors is committed to a future of zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. With the tech, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> With the technology and the skills that we have, we can create vehicles that will save lives and reduce the number of crashes on our roadways. That's about 40,000 lives a year that we have the potential to prevent 40,000 deaths a year that we have the potential to prevent on our roadways. <laughs> so um, at GM, innovation is a big part of our heritage and who we are. From being the first company to introduce airbags to the launch of our OnStar services 20 years ago, we have transformed how the world moves, keeping safety at the center of everything we do. And as we look to the future, we believe that a key technology for achieving the zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion vision will be self-driving or automated vehicles. So, <laughs> so uh, this is a new space. So let me begin by explaining a little bit about how we plan to initially deploy these vehicles. So first, GM plans to deploy AVs in a ride-sharing network. So think the Ubers and Lyfts that we use today. Now, deploying these autonomous vehicles in a ride-sharing service, as opposed to selling vehicles to individual owners, has many safety and consumer benefits. Doing so enables us to control, monitor, and service the vehicles, ensuring that they are properly maintained, deployed, and enables us to incorporate real-world learnings into future generations of our autonomous vehicles. 
A fleet approach also allows broader consumer interaction with the technology and provides a transportation solution that is available to all people, including people living with blindness. Additionally, we are committed to deploying vehicles with level four technology as defined by the Society of Automotive Engineers. So what level four means is that the vehicle is fully autonomous within a specific geofenced area. Um, inside of that geofenced area, the driver will never have to take control of the vehicle within that domain. And how that works is that vehicles um, map uh, inside a certain geographic area so the car can perform all of the drive functions itself. And finally, we plan and have committed that all of our autonomous vehicles will be electric vehicles because we do see a vision of a future with zero crashes, zero emissions, and importantly, zero congestion for our environment. Now, ride-sharing services like Uber and Lyft have today provided more mobility solutions for people living with disabilities and others who lack options to, who lack adequate transportation options. We believe that shared, electric, and autonomous vehicles are the future of mobility and that it is critical for these solutions to be inclusive and to provide expanded opportunities for all users. At GM, we're committed to a culture of inclusion to better serve our customers, employees, and community through innovation, talent enrichment, awareness, and outreach for people with disabilities and their allies. We are very fortunate to have an excellent internal employee group at GM called GM Able that advises the company on how to make vehicles more helpful to people with living with disabilities, including recommendations on manufacturing, training, education, and testing. And with the help of GM Able, we focus on inclusive design meaning designing cars and features for those who might otherwise be overlooked because of a disability. There are many design features in our everyday lives that were initially created for those with disabilities, included heated seats, hands-free truck access, and sidewalk ramps. We've discovered that if you design with a disability in mind, you can make the product better for everyone, and that means life better for everyone. Now, an exciting project uh, with our autonomous vehicles is the GM Able recently worked with the Advanced Vehicle Design Team engaging in a deep dive into everyday experience of people living with blindness, including how uh, the day moves, what transportation they used, and what would be most improved the quality of life. Now this feedback will inform our design and manufacture of tomorrow's self-driving cars. We have engineers investigating uh, inclusive user experiences in our self-driving vehicles, including accessible mobile apps and interactive tablets for passengers. There's a dedicated team working to ensure that the mobile apps and tablet features inside the car are readily accessible for our blind customers. And we are still developing these solutions. And we welcome opportunities to connect and partner with organizations and individuals um, to help inform how we design the future of transportation to truly bring mobility solutions for all. Now, um, we currently have a fleet of about 180 self-driving vehicles operating in San Francisco, Phoenix, and Metro Detroit. This technology is here, it's real, and unfortunately, as many folks in this room already know, our current system of rules and regulations are not ready for self-driving cars. <sighs> so, federal... <laughs> now, uh, Federal Motor Vehicle Safety Standards, or FMVSS, establish performance standards for vehicles and detail how manufacturers should test for compliance with those standards. Many of the FMVSS were written at a time when AVs were not a consideration and thus are predicated on having a human driver behind the wheel and human controls, steering wheel, brake pedals, accelerator pedal, et cetera. Now, an autonomous vehicle could meet the safety purpose and intent of these standards, but some of the human driver-based assumptions are no longer relevant or, or are impossible for a driverless vehicle to satisfy. Now, until new FMVSS that apply to AVs are issued, which will likely take years, Manufacturers will need to petition NHTSA in order to deploy driverless vehicles. 
um, or we need federal legislation like the AV Start Act and certainly support um, and appreciate your all support for helping us move that forward um, or try to move that forward last Congress and we're certainly excited to hopefully see federal activity again this Congress. Um, but it, you know, we're, we're in the absence of having federal legislation, we're trying to work with the agency, um, NHTSA, um, to try to petition to allow our vehicles on the road. So in January of um, last year, we submitted the first ever petition to NHTSA asking permission to deploy driverless vehicles. We're still awaiting action from NHTSA um, and encourage support when NHTSA does decide to act on this petition uh, to support it. And this also further shows the need for federal AV legislation um, because of this great delay. Now, on the state level, GM is also actively working to ensure that new state laws regarding self-driving vehicles do not inadvertently prevent people with disabilities from using the technology. So for example, um, some state bills have retained the requirement that self-driving vehicles are also um, have to be licensed drivers. Um, exactly, and so <laughs> we, it's really all about education, it's all about education, and so you know, once we can work with regulators and legislators to let folks know that such provisions actually block those who cannot pass a driver's test um, from accessing this technology, um, you know, we, we've been able to successfully change that language in many of the state bills, thanks in large part um, from working with, with the team um, here as well. And so, in a self-driving vehicle, that, because as we all know, in a self-driving vehicle, the passenger's ability to see or maneuver human controls does not matter. It's the vehicle's computer that handles the driving task. So GM and its partners are working with states to ensure that new laws are inclusive and do not inadvertently preclude certain users from benefiting from the technology. And you know, I'm so thrilled to be here today because I'm excited about the general future of transportation, but I'm particularly pleased to be part of this specific inclusive and thoughtful process as we evaluate the technology and regulations. Um, so self-driving vehicles have the potential to save tens of thousands of lives each year, reclaim and repurpose our commute times, reduce emissions, and provide new mobility and freedom of movement to people living with disabilities and people underserved by today's transportation options. That's why it is so important that we let our regulators and legislators know that we need thoughtful and meaningful AV legislation on the federal level to make sure that we bring this life-saving technology and mobility solutions um, to our roadways to benefit Americans. So thank you so much for your advocacy and, and certainly happy to chat more um, after this panel with, with each and every one of you to, to hear more about why you're personally excited about AVs. Thank you. Thanks. Hi, uh, my name is, let's see if I can get it close enough. <laughs> Hello, okay, that sounds right, is that right? <laughs> no? Really? Ah, okay. <laughs> Sorry, can't hold it. How about that? <laughs> okay. See if I can see my paper and do that. Um, okay. This is uh, Carol Tyson. I'm um, the Government Affairs Liaison with the Disability Rights Education Task or Education Defense Fund. Um, I also uh, serve as one of the co-chairs for the Consortium with Citizens for Citizens with Disabilities Transportation Task Force. Um, along with Claire here, Claire Stanley. Um, I'm very uh, honored to be asked to come and speak. Um, and uh, I'm just going to share um, some of the work that the CCD task force has been doing on AVs in the past year. Um, and I'm happy in the discussions to share any of the work that Dredef or that I know other disability rights organizations are doing. <clears throat> 
um, I'm going to uh, present uh, from, we adopted some autonomous vehicle principles last year as a task force. There were 22 disability rights organizations that signed on. Um, and they're um, not a requirement for legislation, but a guide. Um, and things that we, when we got together and, and talked, um, thought are important for the broader disability community. Um, and this is uh, in support of technology uh, and new transportation that helps us all to move around. Um, so I'm just going to uh, walk you through some of this. <laughs> so and the principles, which were adopted in December 3rd of last year, um, recognizes that while 99% of public buses are, are accessible, um, accessible, affordable transportation remains uh, difficult to access for a lot of people with disabilities. Uh, in 2017, um, 3.6 million Americans with a disability reported not leaving their homes. And, and yeah, it's, it's, a stark, it's a stark number, right? An earlier Bureau of Transportation Statistics study found half a million homebound who cited transportation difficulties. So we know that access to transportation is critical for our community. We know that without affordable, accessible transportation, people with disabilities are unable to travel to, to everything that a lot of folks take for granted, <laughs> to work, to school, to contribute to and participate in our communities, to support and spend time with our family and friends and live our lives to the fullest. Um, uh, and the US Department of Transportation recently released autonomous vehicle guidance uh, 3.0, their third version. Um, and they uh, recognize that the present and future of mobility is changing. Another advocate counted um, the times in the first guidance, this actually 2.0 guidance that they released, they mentioned access for people with disabilities twice. In this new guidance, this newest guidance, which they released just at the end of last year, they mentioned access for people with disabilities 38 times. <laughs> so. <laughs> We've all been very busy, <laughs> and they are taking notice, and it's a priority. Um, and so thank you for all of your work on that. Um, we know uh, that AVs have the potential to drastically improve access for our community, the broader disability community, including members of the blind and low vision community, deaf and hard of hearing, intellectual, developmental, and cognitive disability communities, people with physical disabilities, including wheelchair users and people with neurological conditions, including epilepsy and seizure disorders. Having AVs, this opportunity, when we have manufacturers like GM um, with their commitment to access uh, and this new form of getting around, it is an opportunity to rethink vehicle and infrastructure design and also access and what that means for all of us. So uh, Reagan touched on um, the use of AVs in uh, fleets, um, and I wanted to add that, that one thing uh, some of us have been thinking of is that they'll be likely be adopted by transit agencies as well and used in fleets. Um, and you'll have autonomous vehicle buses, autonomous vehicle shuttles, and then autonomous passenger vehicles. So all the different sizes of vehicles, <laughs> there'll the likely be uh, options there. So these principles, I'm not going to read word for word. I'm just going to run through them so you know. Um, all of these organizations have committed to advocating for uh, fully accessible autonomous vehicles that have 
um, some, some jargon here, accessible human machine interface or HMI systems. So those are the systems that you use to communicate with the vehicle. Um, make sure those are accessible to have um, ramps and securement for uh, public transit autonomous vehicles, um, to have standards that make sure they're safe and uh, crash worthy, um, and that would be in the FMBSS uh, standards that Reagan mentioned. Um, and uh, everyone is supporting uh, legislation that prohibits discrimination in licensing and insurance as well. So we got all the groups to agree that that's critical. <laughs> Um, we are advocating for um, measures to make sure that they're affordable for everybody. Um, that buying one would be very expensive. <laughs> so, so making sure that people have um, subsidies, that there are tax credits, um, and uh, if it's transit, that you, you can access that as well. Um, we want to make sure, and, and people are concerned about um, uh, making sure that uh, data is not shared without permission of the individual, and we think that uh, the companies agree with that as well. <laughs> so, um, and we also see this as an excellent time to improve our infrastructure. We believe that uh, public rights of way, that are sidewalks, uh, crosswalks, um, pedestrian signals, all of those things, this is a perfect time um, to make sure that those are improved and accessible for everybody so that we have a seamless, complete trip. So you can get from that front door to that vehicle <laughs> you know, right on the other side of the curb um, without any problems. Um, and making sure that we're building up our, uh, our networks, our broadband networks, so that vehicles uh, can connect and communicate with each other and with you. This will be especially beneficial in rural areas uh, where they need more broadband. Um, see, I'm, I'm pouring through. <laughs> Um, in these principles, buried in here, <laughs> uh, we have uh, advocated for Congress, in addition to the potential AV Start Act legislation, legislation requiring that as a matter of, matter of civil rights, all new technology incorporates the needs of people with disabilities at the earliest possible point. And that people with disabilities are part of the design and testing of new technologies in order to ensure the accessibility and usability of the technology works for everybody. We are advocating for all of the funding that's needed for research um, in various agencies, including at USDOT, their ATRI program, um, their Intelligent Transportation Systems Joint Program Office, and the FTA and NHTSA as well, um, and the Access Board to make sure there are standards set that work for everybody. Uh, I think that's it um, for the for the principles. One of the things I just wanted to mention that um, AVs have really been a hot, hot topic here in DC for the past, I, I've just been back for this past year, so I guess it's past year and it looks like it's not gonna let up at all. Everybody's still talking about it, so it's the perfect thing to talk about. USDOT, um, I think in the past year I've been there maybe four times for different stakeholder meetings at least. <laughs> um, we, a group of us, including um, Tony Stevens, uh, presented to the US Access Board earlier this year to make sure they were aware of the potential for AVs, uh, make sure they are um, interested. And the Office of Disability Employment Policy at the Department of Labor held a stakeholder meeting as well 
um, I think we had at least 20 different disability rights organizations, along with the Department of Justice, the Access Board, National Council on Disability, uh, AARP, a couple other groups, all there to share what we all wanted and needed for, from AVs and, and to share the potential and how excited we were for AVs to, to come to fruition. They recently, just last week, actually released a report on that meeting in case you want to learn what everybody had to say. Um, have, there are a whole bunch of resources. National Council on Disability put out a report. A National Center for Mobility Management put out a, a much shorter brief <laughs> if you don't want to read a long report. Um, and uh, just uh, recently, USDOT, the D Department of Transportation, released a notice of funding opportunity for $60 million to encourage uh, states, public universities, and uh, local uh, cities uh, to start uh, testing, researching, and demonstrating autonomous vehicles around the country. And they're prioritizing accessibility in that funding. Um, if you are interested in that, I would encourage you to reach out to your local transit agency or state and let them know, hey, we think this is important. You should apply for that funding. Uh, every person, every state official that I've asked has been excited when I've asked <laughs> if they're doing this. So um, you, could, you could ask them and, uh, and say you'd like to help them out to make sure that that happens. Um, I think that's it. There's a lot more going on, but I'll, I'll stop myself there. Thank you. Great, thank you so much. Um, a lot of those materials that Carol were talking about, um, we have at the national office, so let us know and we can make sure you get your hands on those. Um, great, we still have plenty of time. We have about 20 minutes, so lots of time to ask questions about AV. So if we have a mic runner. Hello, I'm Sharon Strakowski from Massachusetts. And one thing that I'm concerned about is the use of these autonomous vehicle fleets in rural areas where they're very much needed, um, but where I could see that the volume of, of numbers wouldn't be so great. And I wonder if that's been in the thinking stages, how to address rural transportation. Sure. Hi, Sharon. Uh, this is Reagan with General Motors. So um, this is something I care passionately about, too. I've already called out uh, my, my folks from Missouri, but um, I'm from a rural area as well and, and see a huge need for increased transportation options in, in rural America. Um, so the way we see AVs, um, you know, kind of coming coming to market is, is in dense urban centers. Um, so again, I said we've been testing in, in downtown San Francisco in Detroit, as well as in Phoenix, Arizona. Now, part of the reason that AVs are first going into dense urban centers is because we're still working to get that technology perfected. So when we're testing a vehicle on complex roads in San Francisco, that vehicle is um, encountering complex situations about 46 times more than when that vehicle is driving on suburban roads out in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, and because these vehicles are still being developed, they're going through what's called machine learning. Now, machine learning, um, particularly when you're looking at AVs that are operating in a fleet model, means that the more complex situations that one car experiences during a test drive, the smarter the entire fleet gets. So when one vehicle in our 180 encounters a pedestrian or encounters a cyclist or has some other um, use case about what it's experiencing during that drive, all 180 cars get smarter. 
Um, so that is why we're seeing AVs um, from now into the immediate future, um, both testing and ultimately deploying in dense urban centers. But as this ve vehicle technology continues to develop, continues to become more economical, um, it will expand into rural America. Um, the first step of that is mapping um, rural roads and then processing that mapping data and then ultimately bringing the cars into communities. So um, we're talking to a lot of different folks in rural America learning about transportation needs because the use case of an AV um, in downtown San Francisco and the needs of transportation in downtown San Francisco is a lot different than the roads in my hometown in Cape Girardeau, Missouri. So um, right now we're learning about the needs and, and still developing the technology. But again, that is happening um, primarily in dense urban centers. But certainly appreciate and look forward to getting these cars in rural America. Hi. Um, this is Mikey Wiseman from Miami, and I, I may be alone out here with this with this question, but you mentioned the significant increase in the mention of disability and persons with disabilities, um, and that was a, a great improvement. I'm just wondering if there's been any actual mention of persons who are blind and visually impaired. Unfortunately, I find myself oftentimes... Um, being lumped into the term disability. And I, 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 I try to take my disability back. My, my own disability is that I can't see well. Um, I'm, just, I'm just wondering if there's actual considerations for those that can't see and to avoid discrimination moving forward. And I'll, I'll go with a specific example. If, if we would have been considered every time they did a curb cut on every intersection, there would be an audible pedestrian signal at every intersection. Um, so I just want to make sure that we're not left out or that we are setting ourselves up for further discrimination or exclusion by being lumped into just a general term of disability. Hi, this is Carol. Um, so I'm just going to uh, add actually, <laughs> uh, yes, um, I think... Uh, that initially, actually, since the for, since I've been involved for the past year, I think there's been an automatic sort of assumption uh, when people are talking about the potential for AVs that it will help be most beneficial for for the blind community, um, and that those are the th that's the research that's already that's been I think been going on the longest um, that uh, manufacturers have been talking to. Uh, members, organizations from the blind community. Um, I know that ATRI, which I'm sorry, it's an acronym and I cannot remember for the life of me right now the full uh, name, but it is, um, it is a department at the U.S. Department of Transportation that works on, on uh, new technology and access. Um, and actually that is one of their main, um, the, the main things that they work on is access for uh, people with sensory uh, disabilities, so a blind community and, and um, deaf and hard of hearing as well. Um, so there's a lot of work that's being done. Um, there's also research that's happening at Carnegie Mellon, um, specifically looking into uh, making vehicles more and more accessible um, for folks with sensory disabilities. I think we're ready for the next person. This is Chris Hunsinger, <laughs> and um, I have a question, and I'm trying to figure out um, when you talk about the shared ride model, are you talking about something closer to Zipcar where people can use the unit but um, then someone else picks it up? Or are you talking about the idea that people will be being picked up by vans um, 
and being dropped off where they need to be dropped off, just like our standard shared ride system is now for people who use paratransit. Um, because those things are very different one from the other. And I certainly would like to have my demand vehicle be available to me as long as I knew what corner to pick it up on um, and just take off and go where I need to get to. Sure, and that's a great question. So this is Reagan with General Motors. Um, right now, different companies are developing uh, different solutions and different models of, of how the autonomous vehicle technology will be used. So um, my answer is, is limited to kind of where um, GM uh, understands and, and plans to deploy the technology. Um, but as Carol's mentioned, there's, there's so many use cases, um, both in, in public transit as well as private transit. So. Um, right now, we are developing both an autonomous vehicle as well as an app um, solution um, in order to, to call these fleets of vehicles. So um, right now, we're, we're looking at personal mobility or, or individual vehicles. So the Chevy Bolt platform is what we're currently using. Um, and that will then go into um, a fleet that we own, operate, and manage. Um, and the users, um, to be able to connect with these autonomous vehicles, will have an app on their phone, just like you would have an Uber or a Lyft app. So anywhere that you are within um, that term I use, that geofenced area, or where we've already mapped where the cars can operate, you can uh, go onto your phone, um, be asked to pick up at any location. That autonomous vehicle will come pick you up, um, and then will drop you off at your final destination. Um, so we plan to use um, that ride-sharing fleet for, for personal mobility use. Um, we've also recently gone into a partnership with DoorDash, so we see some ability um, to be able to deliver your burritos to you as well using autonomous vehicles. <laughs> um, and and we're, we're being very thoughtful both with the design of the car um, as well as uh, the design of the human-machine interface that the Carol's mentioned. So. We understand that a user's ride doesn't just mean sitting in a vehicle. It means finding the vehicle, exiting the vehicle, and being dropped off in the right place. So we're being really thoughtful and intentional about how we're, we're designing that app solution, about how the cars are dispatched for people, and making sure that inside the vehicle that the user is also um, being taken care of with, with um, their ride experience. And, and uh, Mikey, kind of to your question as well, we're, we're not developing the HMI just as you know one blanket kind of solution for every single user in the vehicle. So we've been working very closely with Will Shell and, and members of the Disability Advisory Committee um, at the FCC about what um, users um, experience whenever they're, they're deaf or hard of hearing too. How do those individuals work with the cars? Um, how, how do blind communities, how do folks in wheelchairs? And so we're being thoughtful about how that app actually works uh, for different populations that'll be calling our, our shared fleet um, kind of model, if that answers your question. Uh, hello, Dan Spoon from Orlando, Florida. Uh, my question is, we're going tomorrow to walk on the hill and talk to our representatives and we've said the AV Start Act What's my ask? Is there a bill number? What kind of, when I mention this, are they going to understand what I'm talking about? Is this a new concept? Are they going to say, oh gosh, the AV Start Act, we've heard a thousand people come talk to us about this. So what, where are we in the education process for the representatives with the AV Start Act? And what, is there a bill number? First of all, Dan, thank you, thank you, thank you for asking. <laughs> and thank you to every single person in this room who is spending time tomorrow talking to their representatives and their senators about getting federal AV legislation. So um, 
to get to give some context and and also a huge thank you to ACB for being one of the biggest champions of this bill too is last Congress we saw two bills introduced. Um, the first one was called the Self Drive Act, and we saw that bill introduced on the House side. Now that bill passed the House floor um, in September of 2017, nearly unanimously. Um, and so the the way the process works is it moves through the House and then we went to the Senate. Now the Senate had a companion bill that was very similar to the House Self Drive Act, um, but but some differences. And that Senate bill uh, passed the committee under the name of the AV Start Act. Um, now both of these bills on a high level have three similar um, uh, provisions and three items that we specifically need in federal AV bills. The first one are exemptions. So the bills would expand the number of exemptions that manufacturers may obtain from the FMVSS, so those outdated federal motor vehicle safety standards. The second thing that these bills had in common is, is rulemaking. So these bills would direct NHTSA, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, to issue new FMVSS that accommodate AVs um, that are designed to be driverless. Now the third piece um, is also very important um, because right now, as I mentioned, we're seeing AV bills um, being introduced and passed in the states. And we applaud this forward momentum in the states, but we also recognize that our interstate highway system is truly that, it's, it's interstate. And so we need um, federal preemption to make sure that um, there is clarity between what the federal government controls and what, what um, state governments control because once we get states in the business of regulating the, the motor vehicle design and constructs, um, we're, we're going to get behind on being able to innovate uh, these, these solutions. So um, Dan, to answer your question, um, these bills have not yet been reintroduced this Congress, but this is the perfect time to be going and asking your elected officials to again introduce these bills and to move them forward um, because the time is now to get this done here in the states. Um, recently, uh, we sent a letter to the Hill from the Coalition for Future Mobility, which is a, um, about 100 different, 150 different folks um, have signed on to some of these letters asking Congress to again reintroduce federal AV legislation. So. Uh, when you're in the Senate, the AV Start Act, um, folks will know what that is. And in the House, the House Self-Drive Act, folks will know. Um, but AV federal bill is, is top priority for the industry and, and for safety on our roadways. Um, so last year, it was Senator Thune that introduced it in the Senate. Um, and the House, it came out of the House Energy and Commerce Committee. Um, kind of a, a bunch of members um, worked on it. And so if, if you see that the member of Congress that you're meeting with is on House Energy and Commerce, put extra pressure on them uh, to move it forward. Um, and same thing in the Senate. Uh, Senate um, senators that are on the Senate Commerce Committee, extra pressure there too, because those will be the two committees we needed to move through before it, it uh, goes to the floor. And um, bill sponsors are still still discussing who will actually carry the bill. So um, just blanket blanket put the pressure on because we we need you all um, to help get this get this going this Congress. Uh, St Steve Mendelson here. Uh, in California, my wife, Judy Wilkinson, who's president of the California Council, and myself have had the opportunity in, uh, of talking to Cruz uh, and have really appreciated that opportunity. And I think we all very much appreciate the partnership that ACB has developed with General Motors and the opportunity to, to give our input and, and, and responses to the exciting things you're doing. Uh, I want to comment on a couple of things that were said today uh, that, that concern me. Number one was uh, uh, your apparent emphasis on, on apps 
as a way of summoning vehicles, uh, and on a tablet on the vehicle as a way of having whatever degree of input or information access that the passenger will receive or require. Now that's all very well and good for uh, the, the people who have apps and the people who can access tablets, but many blind people, particularly older people, uh, are not going to have that capability. So we want to make sure that they are not excluded by that emphasis. We want to make sure that emphasis is only one alternative, but is not the exclusive alternative. Uh, so far as the issues of a practical nature that concern blind people in the day-to-day -day use of these, I think I'd be happier to hear rather than, uh, uh, I'm sure, uh, very well-meaning uh, and sincere assertions of an intent and an effort to make it so, some articulation uh, of what those issues are. I might just say briefly, to my mind, they include, number one, yes, summoning the vehicle, number two, knowing where the vehicle is, number three, knowing that the vehicle is the right vehicle, number four, n knowing when it's or how to start the vehicle, to direct the vehicle to go, number five, in the event of something unusual happens, such as a stoppage, uh, knowing how to get information about what's going on, uh, and number six, of course, knowing how to contact someone, uh, and something like the OnStar system would be a good analogy, knowing how to contact someone in the case of an emergency. Number seven, knowing when a stop means the vehicle has reached its destination, and again, knowing exactly where the vehicle has stopped relative to where we want it to go. Uh, and I can name, and I'm sure everyone else here too, can name a number more on those cases, and I'd very much like to see uh, some specific response on those kinds of issues which uh, are pertinent to, if not unique, but at least certainly very pertinent to, to, to blind people. Uh, also, uh, in addition to that, there are some issues that I won't go into now uh, about the AV Start Act that concern me, and number one is the total preemption of state, re of state safety regulation. I understand how one who was anxious to move forward could see that uh, uh, as resulting in the unnecessary uh, interference with or delay of the process and could see it as uh, precluding or restricting progress. But on the other hand, as we know from other kinds of technology, a state action has often been an impetus to accessibility uh, in fields like telecommunications, for example, uh, which were not possible on the federal level. So thank you very much. Yeah, th uh, thank you, Steve. Just uh, real quick to respond to a, a few points in there. I'd love to chat with you more afterwards. Um, I, I was remiss um, not to talk about kind of our customer support feature in the vehicles, too. Um, we do have full um, kind of audio uh, two-way communication for customer support. And then we will have OnStar in all of our autonomous vehicles, too, for that emergency communication as well. So um, thank you for bringing that up. And I, I am sorry that I didn't um, highlight that as well. Um, and, and to your feedback about some of the different points that... that General Motors and our engineers and, and crews, our wholly owned subsidiary, should be paying attention to. Um, this is exactly the kind of dialogue that, that our engineers and developers are hungry for. So thank you for speaking with crews, and, and let's continue that conversation um, because that, that's critical for our engineers. Thank you. Uh, and this is Carol. Well, um, I decided... That's my, my, my turn. Sorry. Oh, sorry. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. That's okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't, I don't mind. I just wanted to add that the one thing that I think was in both the Senate and the House bills was a, a accessibility advisory committee at USDOT um, that it would create. Was it in both? Okay, I'm just looking to Reagan to, because I haven't looked at them in quite a while now. Um, so that is something that would actually be incredibly beneficial, and it would be good to have all of those concerns raised in a committee like that. I think something I was reminded of from a meeting we had 
at USDOT last week was that if you're talking about that accessibility advisory committee, just ask them to make sure that it meets more than once a year. <laughs> and so, um, we had a discussion with DOT last week about that. Um, so we need a regularly meeting, <laughs> well-funded, well-staffed accessibility advisory committee so that the, um, all the stakeholders can learn from you about what's needed. So. Uh, okay, sorry. I, I'm just wondering about the, the, uh, the concept that of the vehicle being possibly having an issue with with things that are not mapped. Let's say all your road roads, that, the major roads, and maybe some of the minor uh, will be mapped. But and then they just like OnStar, they use um, they use uh, GPS. Well, what what happens when you get a really really good cloudy day where the vehicle is having a hard time reaching to get true GPS service, enough satellites that, that uh, it, it could depend on what it's doing. What, what's going to happen then? Sure. Thank you for that question. So, um, and I, I just want to pass along, Claire had said this was the, the last question too, since we're close to time. Absolutely. Um, so this is uh, Reagan with General Motors. So um, the whole reason that we only allow our vehicles to operate on mapped areas is because um, the redundancy feature. So um, our cars are equipped um, with LIDAR, radar, um, wheel encoders, and cameras, um, as well as those high-definition maps that are, boarded, uh, that are onboarded onto each vehicle and updated frequently um, because all of those safety systems are redundant. So if we have um, a failure from the GPS, which can geolocate our car within two centimeters, um, we have all of the external data points that, that we can layer on top of that to make sure that our car is driving safely. So we're not relying on the maps. We're not relying on the, the algorithms directing the vehicle. We're not relying on all of those that extra hardware that's creating a 360-degree view of the world. Um, we're, we're layering all of that on top of it to make sure that these vehicles are driving safely. Um, so, so that's why the cars don't operate outside of a mapped area. You know, they, they could operate, but for safety reasons, we want that redundancy and safety and, and only use those maps. And, um, because the, the car is not a human, it, it's a computer, um, it's able to drive safer too. So it sees a cyclist, it sees, pedestrian safety is huge here. You know, we have about 6,000 pedestrian, uh, deaths or injuries a year. And so being able for the cars to make sure that they are seeing and responding to pedestrians who might not see the vehicle is, is huge too. And that's what the LIDAR, radar, camera, and sensors on the car is able to do. Then inputs that information back into the computer and the computer is able to make 10 times its predictive next move within a second. So, so 10 times a second, that car is deciding what is the safest next thing for me to do. Um, and that's why we're so excited about that technology because it does bring, bring greater safety benefits to our roadways. Great, thank you so much. I just wanna say thank you to Carol and Reagan again. Thank you, I know I learned a lot and I know this is a new area, so thank you so much for coming. Um, so we are going to go now into um, some presentations from our sponsors who put, helped put on our event today. Um, Eric Bridges, are you in the room? Yes. Okay, can you come and introduce our sponsors, please? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, I'm 
All right. Cool. I'm doing it remotely. <laughs> well, um, as, I, as I mentioned at the beginning of this uh, uh, event this morning, as well as yesterday before the president's meeting, we're very fortunate this year to have five sponsors. Um, and, uh, and a couple of them are, are here today uh, to speak with you a little bit about uh, the, the work that, that we're doing uh, with them, as well as uh, some of the, the products and, and uh, endeavors that they have uh, planned for the future to, to make products and services more accessible to our community. Uh, Claire, who is with you? Um, I actually, no one has approached me. Do we have one of our sponsors up at the front? Thank you. <laughs> Blind moment. There, there are two individuals here. Okay, our first um, presenter is going to be Matt Aders. Thank you so much for being here. All right, Matt. Matt is a senior vice president with Vispero. He, up until very, very recently, he was... Uh, managing the Passiello Group, which was the IT consulting arm for Vespero. And for those of you that aren't aware of Vespero, used to be VFO, used to be Freedom Scientific. I don't know. It's a, a whole bunch of different names. So we'll, we'll do a name game. We'll play name <laughs> but game Matt, um, thank you so much for being here, and I'll let you kind of talk through sure. uh, all of that. Thanks, Eric. And thanks, Eric. And uh, thank you, everybody, for having us here. So. It, we could play a name game to see how many people remember all these names. So it was, it was VFO. Then I think there's one called Vizio. Oh, wait, that's a TV. That's a TV. Okay. Oh, yeah. We're not going to go that far back, are we? Um, so, so we'll start with the, I think it's called Vespero now. Um, but tomorrow it could be something different. Don't, don't hold me to that, okay? My business cards were printed yesterday just in case, and I'll get new ones tomorrow. So... Um, I am currently a vice president of corporate development for Vespero. And as Eric said previously with the Passiello Group and previously before that with Freedom Scientific. And tomorrow I'll probably be with one of the other companies. But so who is Vespero? Um, well, you know, I think that a lot of people get caught up in this one name, Vespero. But what we need to focus on is the, the four brands within the company. So most of you probably know Freedom Scientific. If you use JAWS for Windows, a focused Braille display, Ruby, handheld, thank you. Um, I don't make any of them, so I appreciate the claps, though. Um, I'm not quite the entertaining as Mark Reichard was earlier today, but, uh, um, but I'll try. So, um, But, yeah, so obviously the JAWS, well-known brand, focused Braille display, Ruby, handheld magnifiers, and so on. Um, recently, Freedom Scientific did release a new... Um, scanning product called the Omni Reader, brand new in the last week. Um, it's a standalone scanning machine with a screen built in. Um, for those of you who knew ABIC, I think was the name, name of the company we bought like, I don't know, a while back. So uh, that's a rebranded, redone product uh, just on the market a week ago. So if you're at CSUN um, in a couple weeks, you can see it. If not, there's a person in your area who can help you see that. Um, another one of the brands within the company is called Optelec. Optelec makes low vision devices for people with low vision. You got it. Handheld cameras. Most of them know things like the Clearview um, with speech, which is a large print uh, camera with um, 
uh, OCR built in. You could take a picture and read it to you. Um, one of the new products from them is called a Compact 6, similar to the Ruby handheld magnifier, except that it's made on the Android operating system and also does OCR as well, for those of you who know our uh, abbreviations of optical character recognition. Um, the last product um, company is Enhanced Vision, um, also low vision. Uh, see, we got one clap in the room. That's good. Uh, we'll write down where you are. They must be selling well in that neighborhood. Um, Enhanced Vision has been very popular in um, the VA um, for most of the veterans was available for many years. Um, Enhanced Vision released a new um, scan and read device um, called the Smart Reader. It's without a screen, but very similar to the Omni Reader. Uh, very small, very portable, long battery life, and you can carry it around and do scan and read with you at any point. Very easy to use. And the last company is the Passiello Group. Um, we like to say TPG because it's hard to say Passiello, trust me. My uh, boss calls it Passiello, comes up with all kinds of names. It's harder to say than Vespero. So, um, but if you know TPG, um, uh, they do web and application accessibility, both for internal facing applications for employees, as well as external facing applications for customers. And so we work with many of the companies you may work for or you buy goods from, helping them with their accessibility type of issues. So um, I do thank you for um, having me speak today and, and glad to support ACB and your mission. Um, I am local here for those of you who are in the DC area. Um, I see Eric, at, trying to see him once a month when our travel allowances permit. Um, but if there's ever something that you need that you need from Vespero or you're hearing that we're not doing the right things, don't hesitate to holler. Um, these guys can reach me at any point and we can get you in contact with the right people. Thanks. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. Um, our next sponsor we want to introduce is Rob Marney from Sprint. Thank you so much, Sprint. Hello. Can you hear me? Great. Um, I won't say can you hear me now. That's what I used last year. Um, so, um, yeah, I was uh, here last year, so it's nice to come back to, the, to this event. I, I really appreciate the work everyone does here. I um, as a person that's visually impaired, um, you know, I see the great work that's being done, and it's really benefited my life, uh, both personally and professionally. So thank you. I didn't get a chance to do that last year. So anyway, so um, just I'm just a 30 second aside. I'm, I have ocular histoplasmosis. It's a retinal disease. So I had it since uh, the 80s when I was in grad school, and I've lost uh, central vision in one eye then, and then. Over the last 20 years, I've, I've been losing my central vision in my other eye. But um, through all that, I've, and then I picked up glaucoma and cataracts along the way. But, um, you know, it's like a beat-up car that keeps moving a little bit. <laughs> so I, uh, I've been able to, to map out a career with, uh, in the telecom space for MCI and then Verizon. And, and now I'm with Sprint. So, um, you know, along the way, the, uh, all the laws and regulations have helped me to make sure the companies uh, do the right thing and give the tools and uh, the time you need to adjust to the vision loss. So, um, so thank you once again. So anyway, so I'm with Sprint, and you know we don't make accessible devices. We just 
you know, sell them, for, you know, the phones and the tablets, and that's where uh, most people get their phones through uh, wireless providers. So um, I joined Sprint two years ago, and we have a group. We're in the, I'm under the accessibility group, and we have a small group called Sprint Vision, and, and there's a bunch of contractors, including myself, and we do outreach, and uh, we're all either blind or low vision, and we're managed by Kelly Egan, who's, uh, uh, I think, I've, who gets around. She knows a lot of people, and she's a great person. So, um, so what we do is we were, you know, our general mission is just make it easier to support the community and for people to become Sprint customers and be happy with Sprint service. And um, so we we're, we're, we do it in a different some different ways. You know, we Sprint is you know fourth out of the four largest uh, wireless providers, and uh, so we've had to be really aggressive with our pricing. So we're usually our promotions are are better and. Rates are better. The data plans. Um, so you know, we, we try to stay competitive there. And then on top of that, we've added some promotions for the blind low vision community, like giving Uber credits when you sign up, or or the KNFB reader. And you know, we're looking at other things as well. Um, and then you know, we just try to make provide really good customer service. We have a dedicated customer service number number for people with disabilities. Um, all our websites are accessible. And you know, we have. Things like free uh, directory assistance, and uh, but most of all, you know, we're really proud of our outreach effort. You know, we we try to go to as many, for instance, ACB events as possible, even the you know the local and the state ones. So we're we're pretty proactive to come to the events, because um, and, and a lot of times we can bring the store with us, so we can demo devices, because um, we support both you know Apple and Android, and so. So you have time to look at the devices and play them around, and then uh, you can we activate phones and then we sell things if you like. So uh, we're just basically out there. You know, we're not a, an accessible company dedicated to that, but we we know the important role we play in in uh, getting these devices to you guys at affordable prices. So um, so if you're uh, if you don't aren't contacted by us, uh, contact us. We'll see if we can come out to any event that you you're interested in. So. Thank you. Okay. Awesome. Well, our uh, our final sponsor presentation of the day, uh, he flew here uh, to be with us from the Dallas area. Uh, this quite literally is the gentleman that made the Cisco 8800 series phone speak. Uh, so, um, it, it, you know, it, it's been a journey uh, to get to, to where we've gotten uh, with accessibility of, of uh, office desk phones. Uh, it's been a journey, but man, we got there a lot quicker than I would have envisioned once our initial engagement began uh, roughly two years ago now with Cisco. And in large part, it was due to uh, this gentleman's uh, vision, his, his wanting to have really good outreach with our community to do uh, field testing, and uh, basically his willingness to, to listen and to be creative and, and uh, problem solving. So with that, I'd like to invite uh, Jim Brazier to come and say hello.
Thank you, Eric. I think Eric was looking at my notes. He, uh, <laughs> he gave you a... Can you guys hear me okay now? Okay. So, like Eric said, uh, we started... So I'm Jim Brazier. I'm a product manager at Cisco responsible for phones. Uh, one of the things I own are, is the accessibility portion of phones. About two years ago, we started working with Eric and Tony uh, to, to figure out what Cisco could do to make our phones more accessible. You know, Cisco provides enterprise class phones in the workspace. Our phones go into retail shops, schools, government organizations, banking institutions, financial institutions. We have our phones everywhere. We build enterprise class phones. Those phones are capable of performing many complex tasks complex tasks. They have displays on them, and part of performing those complex tasks are looking at the display. That display has critical information for the user to see, contextual information that helps them understand here's what's going on. As you guys know, the, for the vision-impaired user, it becomes very challenging to use that phone if you can't see all the information that's on the display. So after discussions with ACB, our goal was to provide phones that gave employees with impaired vision the same workplace capabilities as employees without disabilities. So we started with a series of conference calls, um, but we really laid our groundwork at a meeting in Dallas when Eric and Tony came down there in the heat of the summer. Uh, we met at the American Foundation for the Blind in Dallas. They were able to demonstrate, here's a working environment for vision impaired, here's a living environment for vision impaired, and you could see, here's some of the challenges that we deal with. We talked about how phones are used every day and attempted to identify the most common use cases and the most painful use cases for employees. You know, they went through examples, uh, trying to change settings on a phone. If I want to change my ringtone so that I have a different ringtone than all the other employees, uh, you have to go through three to four uh, options in the settings menu. So how does someone who can't see that settings menu do that? They either have to memorize the instructions and hope they don't get it wrong, or they have to ask for help. Call comes in, you know, call comes in, I look at it, and I can say that's important or it's not important, I make a decision how to use it. If you can't see that incoming caller ID, how do you know whether or not to answer it? Uh, looking through call history, did I miss a call from my wife while I was away? The, the <laughs> 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 but but the really, I mean, the one that really got me was the discussion around soft keys. So our phones have all these keys on, they have a normal keypad, they have hold, transfer, conference, volume up, down, and all that, which can be memorized. But the bottom of the display is a row of keys. And the functionality of that key changes depending on the state of the phone. So when a phone's sitting there idle, those buttons may say new call, they may say do not disturb. <clears throat> Once you get into a call, those same buttons will change. And now it may say transfer or conference or forward or something like that. And so if you can't see that, how do you know what function those buttons are performing at the time? So we took this set of use cases, after those meetings in Dallas, went back to our engineering team and asked them to give us a solution. Uh, what can we do to address this? And as, as Eric alluded to, what can we do to address this quickly? Is there something we could do that we could deploy this to a, our existing phone platforms and not have to go build a new uh, hardware platform to do this? Came back to Eric and Tony in the fall of 2017 with a proof of concept. Um, we had some things that we felt really good about. We had some things that we had questions about, because all of our developers, they can see, right? So they're going through this, and they're looking at it and saying, yeah, this seems right to me, but what do they think? One of the big challenges we had is these desktop phones, they don't have the horsepower of a smartphone. They don't have the same CPU as an Apple device. They don't have the same CPU as an Android device. 
So they have limited bandwidth. So when we went to start implementing Texas Beach Engines, there's some struggle there. Um, so we took the feedback from the proof of concept demo, uh, went back to the engineering team and said, let's take this into a product development stage. Fast forward to January 2018, we moved into an engineering field trial stage. And so that's where our good friend Kim here from Perkins School of the Blind and National Industries of the Blind participate in EFT. Once again, our developers uh, are really smart people and they look at it and think this is really working well. But they don't have the real experience, right? They're listening to it and looking at the same time and they think, yeah, I'm getting all the information I need. And so I explained to Eric and Tony, the key to this was getting real user input. I need people who will give me feedback, who will give me feedback, not just use it and not tell me about it. Um, <laughs> Give me feedback that says this is good and this is not good. And Perkins, Kim had 10 users who were, so I participate in a lot of EFTs at Cisco where we've gone to customers and they give us feedback and sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. This is the best EFT experience I'd ever had at Cisco. Those users were so passionate and they would come in and they would tell us the things that were really good and they would tell us the things that were really bad too, which was exactly what we asked for. That's what we needed. And so we were meeting weekly with them. Uh, I think towards the end, we probably backed off about two times a week. And we took some of that, and we were, rolling, were able to roll it right in. And some of it was a little more complicated. And we said we have to put that on the backlog as something we can address in the future. But in March 2018, we were able to release our first accessibility software release for enterprise phones. Uh, so we released this. It's uh, available on all 8800 series phones. There's about 7 million of those phones out there on desktops today. Anyone who already has a phone can go download that software. People buy new 8800 series phones, they get to download that software. Uh, some of the features we put on it, so standard Cisco phone has a round center navigation button. You walk up to that phone and you tap that button three times and it'll turn on voice feedback. And it'll start talking to you. The voice feedback has been turned on. Now as you walk through the settings menu, it's gonna tell you here's the setting that you're accessing, here's the page you're on, Here's the setting that's been turned on. As you scroll through, it gives you your options. When you select one, it'll tell you here's the one you selected. Incoming caller ID, now that call comes in and I can see it's from my wife and maybe I don't answer it now based on what I learned earlier. <laughs> I, I, I can go back to call history and see. <laughs> I can go back to call history and you can see placed calls, received calls, missed calls. Um, and we're able to address soft keys. As I'm touching those soft keys, they're changing context. When I touch it the first time, it'll announce here's the functionality for that key. If I tap it twice, it'll actually execute it. So I don't have to memorize, here's what these different keys are doing depending on what state. I didn't bring a phone to demo here, but there is a video out there. Cisco has a video out there. People who want to see a demo of it, if you'll Google Cisco accessibility phone video, it's one of the first things that'll pop up. If anybody has other questions, feel free to email me. I can send you links to it. So that was almost a year ago to release that. In January, so our 8800 series phones has two software platforms. The enterprise platform we just talked about is where the majority of our phones are sold. We have a second software platform that we smell, sell into small and medium businesses. Um, so typically a business that has 25 people, 50 people, something smaller than that. And it's a business that would go rent phone service from a service provider. At the end of January last month, we released these same features on that uh, software platform. I think Eric has it now at ACB. Yep. So, so that's out there. It's a little bit different model than it is in enterprise, whereas enterprise, if a company says we're going to go download, we go download it. When you're renting this service, phone service from a service provider, the service provider controls 
the software they release and so you may have to do some work with them to put pressure on them to push that forward to you looking forward uh, you know like I said when we first started this we said let's identify the most painful and the most common use cases it's step one it's step one of what we intend to be a journey um, like I said we know we've struggled with audio performance things our engineering team is looking at that. We think there's some ways we can improve that. Uh, as it's been out there now, we're starting to get customer requests that come in. Uh, the biggest customer request I've seen is support for additional languages, um, especially in Europe. Europe has been real big on when can you support something more than Europe. Uh, one, of the biggest, one of the first requests we had from Perkins and from National Institute of Bond is for directory search. Uh, directory search we don't do a real good job of and directory search is a complicated user experience for us because typically you start typing in you start getting lists of names and so from a user experience perspective we're trying to figure out how to handle that um, one of the things we get is I'm in the middle of changing settings someone comes interrupts me takes me away and I come back how do I know where I'm at on the phone am I back at my home screen or am I in the middle of a settings menu uh, there's been a lot of requests for verbosity once I've used it for a while, I know some of the stuff, so I want to turn some of it off, but leave other pieces on. So we're exploring things like that. Things like font and contrast, what can we do to address that? Uh, Bluetooth keyboards, braille displays. And then the big key here is, as we start designing our next generation of phones, we've been through this, we understand what the requirements are for the next generation of phones, and we can build the capabilities in moving forward. I want to... Uh, give a big thanks to both Eric Bridges and Tony Stevens. We couldn't have gotten here without their help. Uh, they were tremendous in providing feedback and helping us and not being shy about saying, no, don't do that, please do this. Uh, same with Perkins School for the Blind, National Industry for the Blind. Uh, I'll reiterate, getting that real user, user feedback was the critical piece that we needed for delivering a useful experience. And that's it. This is this is Kim, and I just wanted to take one second and personal privilege just to say, Jim is really a genuine guy, and he is so good to work with. I've had a lot of experiences working with companies over the years where they say they're going to do, sure, we're going to do that for you, we're going to do that for you. When he says he was going to do that for us, he did it for me. I pushed and I pushed and I pushed. So, um, Corey, I want you to stand up. Jim wants to meet you. Um, Corey Cadlick helped on the accessibility team as well So when we did our testing. So, thank you. <laughs> Great, thank you so much. And as a Cisco phone user myself, I love it. I, uh, I said the other day, but I'll say it again, I love it that I can see who's calling. I know when Eric's calling, so whether I want to pick up or not, I love it. So thank you. <laughs> Um, so on our schedule, we were supposed to have a time now to talk about any issues that you guys have on your mind. Um, but for respect of um, our presenter who's here now, I think what we're going to do is we're just going to shift it. We're going to have our presenter speak right now. And then at the end, when we're going to do closing, we'll go ahead and do that. So we'll have some extra time there. Um, so I'm really excited to introduce our next presenter. Um, we have started a relationship, or let me back up. Um, I'm very, I have the great opportunity of participating on the Environmental Access Committee with ACB. 
And we started talking about different issues we're facing. And one issue that I'm sure all of us can relate to is getting around on sidewalks and streets and the inaccessibility. And now people have scooters on the sidewalks and those block your way and all those kinds of different obstacles, bike lanes and this and that. And getting around can be difficult because of the different obstacles being put in our way. So we thought, what's the solution? Um, and one of our members um, came up with the great idea of uh, interacting with other organizations that do similar work and seeing how we can have an intersection there. And they brought up the great organization of America Walks. And so we went and reached out and the executive director herself um, contacted me and came down to DC from New Jersey and we met and talked about how ACB and America Walks can work together on future projects and you know come together knowing we have uh, intersecting uh, missions and how we can work together. Um, so we're really fortunate today the executive director wasn't able to come because she had another conference but she graciously reached out to one of their board members and Kevin Mills is here today to talk to us a little bit about what America walks is all about and answer any questions we might have so Kevin so yeah th thank you so much Claire so I'm really uh, excited to be here today so uh, um, closer, I think. yeah closer to the closer to the mic is that that better Okay, excellent. It's, it's good. So, uh, all right, so uh, again, Kevin Mills uh, and subbing for Kate Kraft, our executive director today. She needed to be in Atlanta to meet with the uh, Center for Disease Control. Can you pick it up? Or oh, it's, it's actually off. Okay. All right, like that? Okay, got it. All right. So, um, so I'm the uh, vice chair of the America Walks board. I've been on the board since 2010, and I'm also the program chair. Uh, and then my day job is that I'm um, the head of policy at Rails Trails Conservancy. So, uh, yeah, hey, thank you. Thank you, thank you. So, uh, so I, I, while I'm subbing, I've, I've been uh, working with the organization a long time. We work very closely. Our organizations are, are tied at the hip a bit. And, um, and so uh, hopefully I can answer all your questions. Um, and I'm really excited uh, to be here today. I really do think that there's a tremendous opportunity for our organizations to join forces. And, uh, and I definitely would like to learn more about the challenges you uh, face in navigating your communities and what kind of priorities you have, what kind of opportunities you see um, to make things better. And because uh, I think we're working on, on many of the same uh, objectives here. So uh, it is great. So what I'll do is start with an overview, a bit of the who, what, and how of America Walks. We'll have uh, certainly an opportunity to ask questions and then maybe a little bit of a, of a discussion of of how we can work together. So that, that's what I intend to do here. So starting with uh, what America Walks is, we're the only national nonprofit organization that's solely dedicated to advancing walking and walkability uh, in America. We were founded in 1996, although the, we, we were largely a uh, volunteer-run organization until about, I'm gonna say, seven years ago, six, seven years ago. And now we have a, a wonderful staff uh, working and we're a growing organization. Uh, basically, the organization uh, works by empowering communities and uniting the movement, uh, uniting those partners to advance safe, accessible, and equitable walking environments. So we really want a walkable America. Uh, and we think that walking is a basic human right. And we represent uh, over 35,000 individuals 
as well as about 700 organizations that are aligned with us uh, working in every state in the union. So that's uh, who America Walks is. In terms of uh, what we're after, we basically work with partners uh, for better walking conditions for people of all ages and abilities. We support well-developed and maintained sidewalks, connected trails, uh, slowing down speeds of cars, um, having um, complete streets, and thinking about things like uh, the design of crosswalks, uh, lighting and signals and what have you. Um, as well as mixed land uses, and then transit is an important partner. As you really get the combination of people walking or rolling uh, and accessing transit to be able to um, reach destinations and to be uh, to move around independently in the in their communities when they uh, cannot or choose not to to drive a car. So, uh, so that's what we do now. How we do it is uh, really important. Um, one of the big uh, categories of work is really just about educating the movement. Uh, we have a clearinghouse with toolkits and resource materials. We have some intensive online training. So for example, in April, there'll be a three-part training on equitable development plans. And one of the big examples of that is going to be um, partnering with the 11th Street Bridge Project uh, right, right over here in Washington. and. Um, and then we also run monthly webinars that reach uh, collectively over the course of a year over 10,000 people. Uh, we have a walking college. We're really, as a board, we're really excited about this project. We've been running it several years and, uh, and just get such a tremendous uh, outpouring of interest among uh, what we think of as community change agents, individuals who are out there usually pretty early in their careers trying to make a real impact in their communities. And they want to learn uh, from people who've been uh, deep in this, uh, in this work for, for years or decades, and they want, want to learn from them uh, how to be more effective in their communities. And so it's a, a fairly intensive, uh, uh, ongoing engagement in which they learn from each other and from experts in the field. So we, we love that work. We have a, new, uh, a, a newer program called uh, the Road to Zero program. So this is about pedestrian safety. Um, you, uh, you may know that um, of uh, traffic fatality statistics, that uh, pedestrians are a growing, uh, pretty fast growing uh, segment of overall traffic fatalities, while overall fatalities have been fairly uh, static, went down for a while, went up a little bit. Um, the uh, pedestrian fatalities have been rising throughout that period and take up an ever greater percentage uh, of the total. And so we're trying to bring a lot of focus to that as a social problem that, you know, that, that needs an urgent answer. And, uh, and part of the answer coming from this organization is to help some places with safe systems analysis and plan development. So essentially trying to figure out um, what would be some safety countermeasures that would help these communities um, be more uh, effective in, uh, in uh, reversing those negative trends. Uh, we also uh, offer community grants uh, to catalyze local action. We never have um, as much money as we'd like to give away, but what we do raise, go out um, to you know, philanthropists, foundations, what have you, try to raise money that we can then in turn um, give out in small community grants. That they, they may be small in size, like maybe $1,500, something like that, but because they're going to community-based organizations, that are so effective with their limited funds, we, it has a really big impact and can be very transformative for those local groups. So we're really excited about that. We also uh, play a national leadership uh, role in the uh, walking movement. There is something called the Everybody Walk 
collaborative, which is uh, which which has played a role really over the last uh, I would say six seven years in building up the walking movement. Uh, America walks, uh, you know, organizes and manages that uh, that process. I served as the co-chair of it for a while, so I'm a big partisan uh, of it. It's really brought together a number of different uh, disciplines to work on these issues together, especially transportation and health, um, public health. And one of the things that grew out of all that work was the National Walking Summit. Has anybody here been to one of our National Walking Summits? Yeah, no? yeah? okay, great. So uh, you know, they were in Washington, D.C. for the first few years, and then we've moved them out uh, and moved them around the country now. So we did one in, uh, in St. Paul, Minnesota. And, uh, and this year we're trying something different. Later this year and into next year, we're going to, instead of one big national uh, walking summit, we're looking to have uh, two, two or three, what we're calling localized national walking summits. Uh, where we'll t uh, dig in deeper on the issues going on in a particular place. And so some of the places we're looking for that. We, we, we're pretty sure we're going to be uh, in St. Louis in 2020, uh, and we may even later this year get to uh, either Detroit or Columbus. So, so trying to um, develop this new model uh, for that. We also uh, very high value in the organization on inclusion. Um, one of the things is, I, I had mentioned community grants before, and working with a, a partner called NICPAD is their acronym. I know acronyms don't you know, always work. Uh, so that's the National Center on Health, Physical Activity, and Disability. And working with them, we uh, had uh, focused some of those community grants on inclusive design of communities. And, uh, and so we're really happy with what's uh, coming out of that kind of work. We also have uh, run a, uh, a repeating webinar called Walking Towards Justice. And this has tackled some really interesting issues, some in, uh, in the vein of racial justice, issues like redlining, what have you. Um, we've also uh, d definitely dealt with, in that regard, with uh, rights of persons with disabilities. Um, and, uh, and so it's been a very uh, great process there. And then we also have a newish um, effort uh, with the Special Olympics, where we're partnering with them on some programming that's focused on how do you uh, include people with, um, with intellectual disabilities in making their communities um, a more uh, welcoming place that, th that they can um, navigate. So that's, uh, that's a, another earlier issue, but kind of what's holding all that together, accessibility issues, ability of, of, of uh, everyone to um, live independently in their communities. Um, then finally, we have uh, the final thing I'll, I'll mention in terms of these programs is uh, is policy work. Uh, one of the main ways that America Walks works on policy is in partnership with with us at Rails to Trails, uh, in that we have a coalition called the Partnership for Active Transportation, and uh, and so America Walks is a is an integral uh, member and leader within that. And one of the products we've had with the partnership. Um, uh, late last year was something called human-centered mobility principles. So we, we tried to capture, as a coalition, what is it that we were all trying to achieve in terms of safety improvements, in terms of treating streets as public space, um, in terms of affordability of transportation and mobility, uh, just a whole set of issues that, that, that we collectively were bumping into whenever we did our work. And we wanted to essentially get down into a platform, what we all thought about those issues, and then systematically all use those 
to uh, get them out to people to use as a resource as they think about how to advance these issues in their communities, as well as use it um, in policy settings, whether those are local, state, or federal, to uh, put a stake in the ground and say, collectively, we think these are important principles and you, you, know, you need to build a transportation system, for instance, that puts people first and thinks about uh, you know, how, how, uh, how people get through the community and not just you know, how fast can you move a car through a congested urban area. So that, that work is, uh, is ongoing. And in fact, on Thursday this week, give you a sense of how Rails to Trails in America Walks work together closely. America Walks webinar series has this built-in audience from being out there every month, and, uh, and uh, we have these, uh, these principles ready. So uh, we're going to do a joint webinar uh, under the, the guise of the partnership in which we are um, going to be talking about how those principles take, uh, take root um, from the perspective of a trails organization, mine, per, from the perspective of a placemaking organization, Project for Public Spaces, um, as well as from the public health standpoint. And then we're going to have a couple of local examples. We have a board member, actually Rails to Trails has a board member, Dr. Rose Gowan, who's in Brownsville, Texas. She's a city council member and a medical doctor. And she and her um, uh, friends at the School of Public Health have been real leaders in hatching an active plan to, to get their region you know, more physically active and healthy. And, uh, and a trail system is an important part of, of that work. And so she's going to tell that story. And, uh, and then we also have a, a leader from uh, Jersey City, New Jersey, who's, who's done lots of great work in this space. So that's, what's, uh, that's going on on uh, Thursday. And if you go to America Walks website, uh, americawalks.org, uh, you will see on there that um, there is uh, that, that webinar listed and it's not too late to sign up for it if you're interested. So with that said, I know that was a mouthful of activities, but we're doing a lot of things for a, a lean and mean organization. So we, we can go to questions, and it's absolutely fair game, uh, obviously, to ask me about America Walks, but also if you're curious about the Rails to Trails side, I can, I can try to field that too. Okay, a gentleman at table six. Just a second. Okay, oh, okay, excellent. Mike is coming to you. Coming? Coming. There you go. Thank you. Uh, thanks for uh, coming. I mean, this is very interesting. Uh, my name is Chris Bell, and I live in North Carolina. And um, one of the problems I think that happens everywhere with, with people wanting to walk is distracted drivers. Um, and I was. I, well, yeah. But I, 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 uh, I read a statistic a couple of years ago from a study that said that. Only 47% of drivers came to a full stop at a red light. Um, so uh, do you guys have any policy proposals to deal with that? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a great question. Uh, distracted driving is absolutely a big factor in, uh, in rising fatalities of, of pedestrians and bicyclists. Um, and, and it is also um, raised that there can be distracted walking as well. But, but uh, obviously the, uh, you know, the 4,000 pound car can do more damage when, it's, you know, when they're distracted. So, um, so yeah, we, it's absolutely a big, a big problem. One thing I'd say is uh, safety is a big focus in those uh, human-centered mobility principles and in um, the Road to Zero program that, the, that America Walks is working on and in any conversations we have 
with um, the U.S. Department of Transportation and with uh, Congress. So, but I think there's a new reauthorization of the transportation bill due next year, and we think safety's got to be like a central theme of that. Um, so, so I think those, are, and, and actually uh, the uh, previous administration's U.S. DOT secretaries had put quite a focus on distracted driving as uh, something they needed to work on. Um, correct to put the focus on that, but I'm not sure they've gotten to the, you know, to the solution set we all want. So, so it needs continued focus, and we, we intend to shine a spotlight there, but I wouldn't say that we know what all the answers are, and if people have great ideas about that, um, we're all ears. All right, uh, gentlemen at yeah. uh, table two. Well, I've got one here. I've got the mic here, if you don't mind. Um, okay, excellent, excellent. Uh, I don't know if you're aware, but we have a great resource here, right in here in Virginia. Dr. Kim Avila had do, uh, did her doctoral research on uh, pedestrian safety. Mm -hmm. What works, what doesn't work, and especially for the um, blind and visually impaired community. Um, so I, I'm not sure if you're aware of that resource, but um, she, you know, her paper is is wonderful in terms of, you know, how do you build a curb cut that actually works for blind people mm -hmm. instead of the, you know, all the way around one? You got to have them in, in each direction so that you know people can line up on them. I mean, she's done a real de detailed report. So if you're not aware of it, uh, I wanted to let you know that 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 is available and and uh, we can help you get, you know, get to it. Yeah, thank you for that. Uh, definitely we'll bring it to the attention of our program committee of the board as well as, uh, as staff. Thanks. So okay. my name is Jeff Tom. I'm from California, and I will engage in a little discussion. I'm glad to see America Walks here today. Um, I've had interaction with Cal Walks for many, many years, and at first we actually had some good interaction. But in recent years, in both ends of our state, we've had issues in the blind community on a lot of bike lane problems. And frankly, cow walks has been literally no help. And so I would hope that, you know, today is the beginning of some new interaction which can change some things because for a while I've been, you know, getting the impression that we're sort of a minority of walkers lost in the forest and not being listened to. And I hope that ends uh, today. Yeah, okay. You know, thank you for that uh, comment. Just. Uh, Make clear, uh, so America, uh, California Walks is a, an organization that would be affiliated or partner with America Walks, but they're absolutely an independent organization. So we're, you know, they're not a, you know, an offshoot of, of America Walks or anything like that. So, uh, so we, uh, we, but we absolutely you know, want to surface the, these concerns and address them in our work and also uh, make partner organizations aware of them. So. Thank you. Good afternoon. Um, my name is Katie Frederick. I'm from Ohio. First, thank you for coming, and I look forward to hearing more about um, a partnership with, with America Walks and, and ACB. Um, I actually follow America Walks on Twitter personally and um, retweet a lot, of, a lot of the stuff that's posted. It's, it's good information. And um, I was involved with transportation in Ohio, and that's kind of what got me how I found America Walks, actually, was, was through some Twitter interactions. Um, but I, I'm wondering, um, and I had to step out for a moment, so if you if you already talked about this, I apologize for missing it, but do you have um, affiliates or, or, or are um, our walk groups in your state, like the Cal Walks that Jeff mentioned, are they all independent mm -hmm. um, organizations? And then if you if you wouldn't mind, I would I would like to hear a little bit about the rails, rails and Trails. I think I know a little bit about it, but I'd love to hear more. So again, thank okay. you very much. Yeah, thanks. 
So yes, America Walks is, uh, is its own national organization and, uh, and there are, in fact, uh, going back to 1996 and our founding, it was some of the early state-based uh, yeah. walking advocates that founded the organization because they felt they were doing what they needed to do in their states, but they needed a national voice as well. So, um, so for instance, uh, Wendy Landman from um, Walk Boston, which is, a, despite Boston being named, it's a statewide Massachusetts organization. She was around, you know, then and uh, and is uh, is still on our board, and uh, and is a you know real mover and shaker in this movement. But um, but feel strongly that that we need this national voice, and so she'll uh, participate individually in the America Walks board to help um, on on that national end of the work. Um, but but uh, all the state and local organizations are uh, their own 501c3 nonprofit organizations. So we don't tell anyone what to do, um, but we uh, we try to empower and lift up um, all the all the organizations that are trying to do this this work. So. Uh, we can start a conversation within the movement, uh, especially through the Everybody Walk Collaborative, when, when we see maybe a systematic problem um, from, uh, from your perspective that's not being addressed, but, uh, but we're not going to dictate what those state or local organizations do about it. So I hope that clarifies. Uh, as to your rails to trails question, so we're, um, we're a 32-year-old uh, nonprofit organization. We, uh, we are basically building a nationwide network of multi-use trails. So these are your walking and biking and rolling, uh, you know, tra uh, trails that you see in communities all across the country. We're in every state. Uh, we have over um, 23,000 miles of rail trails, over 32,000 uh, miles of multi-use trails that we've helped get built uh, in the country. And uh, we, we do uh, this in several ways. One is we have a trail development team that gets in really deep in particular places and uh, focuses on how do you build out a trail network for that, for that region. Um, and you know, that's soup to nuts from how you build the right coalition, how you get uh, you know, the investments in, in uh, getting the gaps in that system filled, how do you map it all, build the, build the will to get it done, all, you know, all of it. Um, then we also have uh, the policy shop that, uh, that I'm responsible for that's working at the state, federal, and local level uh, at, to raise uh, public investment in building better uh, what we call active transportation infrastructure. Um, and also we're the defenders of some policies that make sure that these corridors remain in public use so they can be trails. It's called rail banking, if you've ever heard of it, um, is one of the, those tools that we we uh, look out for and, and use in our work. And then we have, a, um, from trail use standpoint, we have uh, a website called traillink.com, or you can go to railsandtrails.org and look for uh, find a trail, and that'll take you to this uh, database of GIS information of all the multi-use trails uh, in the country, and you can, uh, you can view that uh, online for free. Uh, and then, um, so, so that, those are kind of the three big buckets, trail, trail development, trail to policy, and, uh, and trail use um, for our work. So, uh, Kevin? Thank you for your interest. Yes. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, Ray Campbell from Chicago. First of all, you called me the gentleman at table, too. You don't know me very well. <laughs> um, and, and I will be reaching out to our, uh, trying to be nice, I, trying to re I'll be reaching out to our Illinois uh, affiliate of uh, your organization to engage them. Um, 
like to engage in one of the big issues that I see a lot, and I love to walk. My wife will tell you, I, I, if I could walk anywhere, I'd do it. Um, but one of the issues I see, especially in uh, downtown Chicago, but in some of the suburban areas I walk in as well, is the, more, the proliferation of outdoor cafes and outdoor eating areas. And those can be a real problem because they take up part of the sidewalk and uh, you know it's hard to figure out how to get around them. Some they're they're inconsistently laid out. Uh, is your organization looking at any policy guidance or that to how to develop those that so that they're developed and consistently so that they provide the eating area, but also provide you know good sidewalk access. Don't don't impede the sidewalk access any more than is necessary. Yeah. Uh I mean, staff may have been involved in that, but it wasn't to, uh, not, not to my awareness, and I think it's a, it's a really important issue, and I, I appreciate bringing it to our attention. I will, I will absolutely put that on the, the follow-up list for us. Okay. Uh, person with the mic's coming. Um, this is Chris Hunsinger, and I have another quest well, question about this issue, and, and that is, we know that if we live in older parts of cities, we usually have sidewalks. And as we move to suburbia, sometimes you have a sidewalk on one side of the street mm -hmm. and none on the other, and sometimes you have none. Um, is there any push? And, and then in suburban areas, you've got the parking lot issue. Um, there's no safe way across some of those. Um, so is there any organizational push to... Um, deal with those kinds of issues, uh, asking that when they zone areas, they zone them with sidewalks, uh, when they're doing new new city planning, et cetera. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but, you know, think of a big theme uh, in America Walk's work is, is a community design is so central to uh, what it feels like to try and get around in a community and so, uh, and we're, we're absolutely uh, hyper aware of uh, sidewalk issues. Actually, let me, uh, I will give you a, a personal story. Uh, when, I, my, when my son was in elementary school and I was uh, working uh, on Safer House to School issues for, for his school, um, a, uh, a friend of mine came to this meeting with a map of our town with uh, all the places that we had and didn't have sidewalks and where there were, you know, where there were issues. It's just essentially a map and said, here's our agenda. This is when Safe Routes to School was a new program. And, uh, and just, you know, basically laid it down and said, you know, our priority is to make sure that there's, you know, sidewalks on all these routes where the kids will need to go from the neighborhoods to the school and make those connections and make sure the crosswalks are safe and all of the rest. And, uh, and just laid that down. And because uh, we live in Maryland, because the state was um, uh, kind of having a hard time ginning up and starting the program, they, um, they didn't have as many strong applications as they did after the program matured. And we ended up getting the biggest grant in the entire state because somebody just came with that idea of just lay out what it is we need and be really clear about it and show why it's important and show how many kids are trying to walk to school. And, uh, and, it, and it really worked in terms of bringing resources to our, to our community to get that done. So we, what, what America Walks tries to do is capture those best practices. This would also be relevant to the last question too, right? Is, is what we wanna do is be a repository for, for collecting. What are those challenges that people face uh, 
in, uh, in making their communities walkable, and then uh, what are the best practices out there for, for dealing with them, and then make that widely available um, to people who are working on this at, at the community level, and, uh, and then where are there uh, kind of you know, policy pressure points where we might also raise those, those same concerns. So, so the, these are all you know, perfect issues to raise. Thanks. Hello, Kevin. Thank you for coming. I'm Jay Doudna from Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. We were once the most unwalkable city in the nation. I think we've finally begun to build sidewalks there as we re-service re our roads. But I wanted you to explain a little bit about the rails part of this. Are, are you in former right-of-ways of, of, of rails, of trains? Is that where this is? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, um, for, first on Oklahoma City, then I'll, then I'll answer directly your question. So uh, I, I did um, give a talk in Oklahoma City once and got to uh, meet, meet the mayor and talk to his chief of staff at some, some length. It was very impressive what, what you were doing there. This, this was a, um, you know, this was an administration that had kind of thought, well, the only way we're going to be competitive and livable is to think about how we make this a more walkable place. And so uh, you were investing in, you know, reinvesting in a walkable downtown. They were, you know, d doing all, uh, quite a number of things. And, and one of the most remarkable was Chief of Staff took me by uh, a freeway that was being taken down with an earmark that they had gotten from Senator Inhofe. And, <laughs> and you know, Senator Inhofe doesn't usually focus a lot on walkability, let's just say. But, uh, but in this case, um, you know, in, in response to what, uh, you know, this uh, Oklahoma City was asking for, you know, helped that get done. So, so it's very impressive what's, what's gone on there. And there also have been, I think, three rounds of local uh, measures to raise the funds to help make this transformation of the community. So. Yeah, so it's, a, so it's a very impressive local story you have there. So uh, in terms of yeah, rails to trails, correct. The rails part is, um, upon our founding, what we had uh, recognized is that there were tens of thousands of miles of unused rail corridor, that, that, uh, you know, that railroads had been um, no longer needing to, to use certain lines. And, so, uh, so, and, and if you think about those corridors, that many of them were sitting... Uh, they were vacant, they were liability problems for the railroads, and they were um, sometimes you know, eyesores, get uh, trash build up and what have you, and they just weren't being used by the communities that they ran through. So, so the core idea of Rails to Trails was to convert those unused uh, former rail corridors into, uh, into walking and biking trails so that it becomes a, a valued community asset instead of, uh, in, you know, instead of uh, you know, something that used to have value, right? And I had mentioned rail banking before. That's just to give you an idea of the relationship between us and railroads. We have railroad, former railroad executives on our board of directors, right? We're, we're, uh, we're very helpful to, um, to the, you know, railroads. And in one sense, we're preserving their history and their structures and what have you, and then um, for trails. And then uh, if a corridor is rail banked, and it's needed later to reinstate rail service, the, the, it remains intact um, so that rail service you know, can be practical to, to reinstate and they have a right to do so. So, uh, so we are hel helping preserve railroad corridors um, so that we have these trails, but we also have options in terms of, uh, of you know, using these public rights of way. Does that help? Next. Kevin, my name's Paul Edwards. I'm from Miami, Florida. And I'd like to suggest, if you'll forgive the pun, three intersections, perhaps. Okay. Um, the, the first is, 
one of the things that inhibits our ability to walk all over the country is a failure to recognize and honor white cane laws. And I would hope that America Walks might be prepared to work with us to help to publicize those. Second area um, that I think inhibits our ability to travel freely is the relatively small number of accessible pedestrian signals that are out there. And we would hope that, again, America Walks would work with us uh, to try to work with uh, state and local officials to broaden the number of these that are available. And the third and final area that I hope we can work together on is an area that I think is a serious inhibition to pedestrian travel period, and that is the proliferation of roundabouts. Mm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I've got, I've got them all down. Um, I, uh, yeah, I think these are uh, important issues. Um, now, just make sure I understand the accessible pedestrian signals. Is this uh, like the idea? I know I have one at the end of my block where you press the signal and it makes a red light for the cars and gives you a decent amount of time to cross. It's not no, like an, an accessible pedestrian signal is essentially one um, that that enables people who are blind and people who are deaf to be aware of when the light changes ah, by the use the, of the uh, audible signals yes, and, yes. Um, and vibration for deaf-blind folks. Okay, yep, I'm familiar with those, yep. Thank you for that. And locator tones, okay. My name is Rosemary Facilla, I'm from Muskegon, Michigan, and I'm president of the MCBVI. Um, in our community, where I live, nobody walks. Everybody drives, so everything is designed in the middle of a parking lot. You know, like if you want to go to the restaurant, you have to go through the parking lot. You want to go to the convenience store. You know, you want to go to your local drugstore. Everything's either in, in, in. So they have sidewalks along the street, but they have no walkway from the sidewalk into the establishment that you would like to visit. And also, one of the issues we have in our community is. Some places they have those little mushrooms that are, you know, the bumps on the approach to the street so you yep. know that you're approaching an intersection. And some are perfectly flat so you have no idea, you know, where the sidewalk ends and the street begins. Oh, okay. So, because yeah. I know uh, I have a new dog and I, we were walking and I wasn't aware that the traffic signal wasn't working properly. We walked out into traffic because we didn't oh, know no. that the curb was there. Yeah. So... Well, well, thanks for this input. I actually, from a Michigan originally, and it's part of why I do what I do, is how poorly some of the communities there are designed uh, for these things. So uh, it, it, part of my, my motivation is, is you know, realizing that we can do a whole lot better than that. Um, and what, one thing I'd say, I'm just uh, kind of you know, throwing things up uh, to see what sticks, but, um, but one thing we've thought about is uh, when you... Uh, build a significant new business, often there's a conversation with the local government about, well, this is going to generate traffic, and what do we need to do in the way of road accommodations to make sure that you're helping carry some of the load that you're going to you know, generate for this community. And we want to um, broaden that conversation to be thinking about all the different ways that, that people get around and, uh, and make sure it's not just about car access. So, so I, think, I think it's a super important issue, and I, and I appreciate you raising it. Okay. Thank you so yeah. much. Oh, thank you for having me. Thank you me. for coming. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
Thank you so much, Kevin. I think we got some great conversations going and I hope we can continue to work with America Walks as we go on. So thank you. Great. Um, so I am getting my Braille notes out. <laughs> Yay. Um, we were going to do this prior, but um, we switched it around um, to accommodate our speakers. But um, we are going to take about 15 minutes before we close up today um, just to open the floor to everybody um, so that we can hear from you. And when I say we, I mean me, Clark, Eric, and the national office about what issues we need to be working on, what we need to be advocating on, taking to Congress, um, talking with Matt Handley about, just brainstorming ideas. So um, we've talked about the three major imperatives we're going to take to the hill but what are other issues that we haven't talked about and of course you can always call us at the national office and bring up issues but since we're all here in one room i want to know what issues you guys are facing back in your home states that we can talk about so we're going to take about 10 15 minutes and then we'll close up so we have a mic runner Hi, Claire. This is Lisa from California. And hi, uh, hi, I'd like to, I'd love to see the ACB start um, addressing the SSI marriage penalty. Oh. Um, that really hurt. I mean, for those of you who don't know, it really hurts. There's a penalty um, if an SSI recipient gets married. If it's to another SSI recipient, both people see a decrease in their SSI checks. And if it's to somebody who wor to works, uh, you can lose your SSI entirely. Um, and it really, it, it makes marriage impossible for many people who are blind and visually impaired and are in love. And I don't think most politicians even know about it. And, if, and, it, and it affects the lives of so many blind and visually impaired people and people with other disabilities who want to get married. Thanks, Lisa. Um, hi, this is Cheryl Cummings from Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. So um, I think we have to do something about websites that are sort of accessible. <laughs> um, in the sense that um, I, I used to work at uh, the University of Massachusetts, and um, SurveyMonkey is a tool I used a lot. When I first started, um, I was able to use it to create surveys, because that was part of my job. Um, but by the time I was close to finishing up my contract, I couldn't create surveys. Mm. And when I sent, when I contacted SurveyMonkey, um, I was told that, um, you know, the website is accessible, mm. and it is. I mean, it is if you're taking a survey, but it's not accessible, or it's not easily done if you have to create a survey. Mm. And so, in effect, I tried explaining to the person that you've created a barrier towards full employment because a tool that somebody needs is no longer accessible. And there are other, you know, there's like Eventbrite that I think is the same way. Um, and there are other, um, there are other websites that, that have this ability. And I think they really do impact our, our, our ability to, to become fully employed. Got it, thank you. Hello. Um, this is Debbie Grubb, and this may sound like an old issue, and maybe many of you thought it was solved, but in the great state of Florida, our right as people with disabilities 
to cast a free, independent, ver verifiable ballot and not be separate but unequal, actually, is, is under attack right now. And in many cases, they don't seem to care much. Um, I talked to our supervisor of elections and said, does, does our legislature understand they're in violation of the Help America Vote Act? Um, so I think that without the ability to vote, we are in a world of hurt because we can't really comment on the issues that are of most important to us. So I could go on and on, but I won't. <laughs> but I just, I just want you all to understand that maybe we're not the only state, but we are fighting for our lives, even with the great technologies and all the work that's been done. Our right to vote independently is under attack right now. Mm. Got it. That's another issue. <laughs> this, is, this is Mary Lee Turner from Oregon. And I have two issues. One is, um, is that a, a friend of mine in Oregon who was trying to take the test needed to uh, get her certification as a therapist, mm -hmm. she was unable to access that test because it was, it was uh, not website accessible. So add that to the list. And then pedestrian safety is a, is a huge one. So I don't know what we have so far with ACB that I can link into, but, you know, we're dying every damn day. Um, so October 15th is a great day, and we need to celebrate it, but um, deaths are happening 24-7. Just a quick verification on your first issue. You said therapist. Is that just like an LCSW yeah. or... What kind of therapist? I think that's I think that's what it was. Okay, gotcha. Hi, Claire. It's Min. Hey, Min. Um, this is also another SSI issue, and this issue affects students who are in school right now mm -hmm. and who have internships mm -hmm. or part-time jobs. Um, there, a lot of I've had people come to me who have internships during the summer or during the school year. And because of the careers that they want to pursue, they get really high-earning internships. Um, and they have been told by SSI that they cannot do those internships mm. and get their SSI at the same time. And these internships are really important to students to give them you know, work experience, but also that money is going towards school. It's not going towards anything else. Mm -hmm. um, so this is something, if we can work on maybe changing that, you know, adding a provision in there for students so they can have internships and work while they're in school so that they're not being penalized for getting that work experience that's going to be extremely valuable when they graduate. Got it. Thank you. My name is Milena Vanderwall, and I'm from the Michigan Council of the Blind and Visually Impaired, and I'm chair of our resolutions committee. And um, last year at our state convention, we passed two resolutions dealing with uh, Amtrak stations. Mm. One issue dealt specifically with unmanned Amtrak stations, and the other one dealing with uh, Amtrak safety with regards to um, knowing when to uh, board the train and all those types of things that occur um, 
with getting tickets when when there's no staff available to assist someone with a visual impairment. Um, I sent those to Eric Bridges and um, he said that he would send them to you and I, I would very much uh, like to talk with you more about it and um, because it's not just an issue in Michigan it's we, we did extensive research and it's happening all over the country with Amtrak moving to stations where they don't have anyone working there. Thank you for bringing that up. We actually have a quarterly Amtrak meeting we attend and those issues have come up unfortunately more than once but we will continue to bring them up so thank you. If we have not heard from you today and you do want to make a comment, can you please raise your hand because we'd like to get someone who we, we have not heard from yet today. And then if we have time, we'll, we will address the other ones. Hi, this is Brooke Dostad. Um, I would like to work with you guys on an issue. I recently got my had to get my prosthetic eyes replaced and my insurance even though I was having like head pain and facial pain, they said it was cosmetic. Um, so they didn't pay any of it. And I know it's not the first time that that's happened. And so maybe there's something I don't know about and I might be ignorant on this issue, but I'd like to at least have a conversation with someone who either has been in that situation or if you guys have thoughts on how we would need to advocate because I'm going to be taking that to court soon mm -hmm. and would need some, would benefit from some help. Um, Dan Sippel, Eau Claire, Wisconsin, and the, uh, Clark from America Walks um, brought it about, uh, if refresh my memory, is that the Transportation um, Act is up for reauthorization next year. And as you know, the current administration would like to privatize our highways and rest areas. So I'd like to ask for your due diligence and uh, be very vigilant, keep it vigilant a vigilant eye out for any vultures that uh, would like to prey upon our employment opportunities along the highway uh, of America. Thank you. Got it. Uh, yes, this is uh, Merrill Schechter from Maryland, Claire. And um, my, uh, in light of what Lisa was talking about, the SSI marriage penalty, um, there's another situation also dealing with, I know someone who receives disabled adult child's benefits, and she and her partner would love to get married, but unfortunately they can't also because they'd lose, you know, she'd lose her benefits. So I, that needs to be addressed as well. Okay. This is Alice Richard, and I am, um, now that I'm 16, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I, I am no longer just vanilla blind and there are mobility issues. And one thing I've noticed when I've tried to go to meetings like here, go to conferences, go to places on, when I'm on vacation, and I request an accessible room. And what I get to, to be able to have that accessible room is a king-size bed when what I really want sometimes is double beds because I don't mind sleeping with my partner who helps me out but when he's not with me and I have to bring somebody and it could be a stranger or it may be a friend you know I really don't want to sleep with them you you can go on cruise ships now and they have 
at each level, they'll have an accessible room at the different levels. And I don't understand why that doesn't happen in hotels, and I'd like to see us work on that. Mm -hmm. I think we can take one more. It's the be the best for last, Claire. It's Ray Campbell. <laughs> Actually, I'm going to give you I'm going to give you two. Uh, one <laughs> is um, hey, I got the mic. I got power. <laughs> take it away. <laughs> no, yeah, right. <laughs> Nancy will take it what, away. <laughs> what one issue is? I still feel we need to do more work on appliance accessibility. Mm. There's more and more things with touch screens on them that we need to be able to access, and the same is true for equipment in health clubs. If I want to do a 30-minute workout in a health club, I have to have somebody come and set the thing for me. I, otherwise, I got to dig around and find the quick start button, which sometimes I can find, sometimes I can't. And uh, I really think that, that, that those two things need to be mm -hmm. put on our radar as well. Thanks. Great. Thank you. Um, I'm sure many of you guys still have things you want to bring up. Um, please contact us at the national office. I can tell you Clark's email address is, no, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> my email address is cstanley at acb.org. That's C-S-T-A-N-L-E-Y at acb.org. Um, I hear Eric behind me. Hi. Um, so I'm sure he has a few things to say. I just wanted to give you somebody some want, info. Somebody want this mic back? Yeah, get it. <laughs> yeah take get it. it from Ray. <laughs> okay. Um, so tomorrow is Hill Day. Yeah. Uh, yay. Um, we're very excited. Um, we want to make sure everybody gets the Hill Drops, uh, the, hand, the flyers you'll be hand, uh, handing out to your Congress members. Um, Nancy, are you passing those out? What's the status? Okay. The beautiful Nancy is going to walk around and hand those out. Um, see emphasis on calling her beautiful. Uh, so you guys can get those to drop off with your Congress members. We also, we were also very fortunate to get some support from our friends at Uber um, to get some discounts, a 10% discount on Uber rides tomorrow. Yes. The passcode, the passcode that you need to use to get that 10% discount is ACB2019. That's all caps, ACB2019. They did ask that if you guys can go in groups, that would be helpful because they can only give so many out. So go, go in groups, but ACB2019 is the code. There's no space. Capital ACB2019, yes. Um, I'm sure Eric will talk about this a little bit as well, but we, meaning the staff, Eric, myself, Clark, Kelly, we will be at the Capitol tomorrow. So if you have any questions, concerns, anything like that, we will be on site so you can come and grab us and we can help you. I was going to ask you, I know it's in one of the cafeterias, which one is it? We will be in the Rayburn cafeteria. On is that where the volunteers will be? Yes. And that is where the volunteers will be located. Um, awesome. Time you need to be there. You need to be there the time that your meeting is scheduled. <laughs> Eric is suggesting being there 30 minutes early if you're going in the morning. There is security you have to go through. You never know how long security is. Also, finding your location, the buildings are quite complicated, so definitely give yourself extra time. Uh, 
we will send out a link to the attendees with those instructions after the fact. So there won't be paper forms. Please take notes. Please, you know, pay attention to what they say. Give a, we want to know your feedback after the fact. So take good notes, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Any other questions? I think the might just project. Oh, that's a good question. I actually do not have those on the top of my head. Do you know those off the top of your head? Um, I can look them up and get the. Oh, Clark knows them. I was going to say I could send them out, but Clark knows them. Yep, right here, Clark. Cool, go for it. Is it hand on? It's Hey, so the question was what were NFB's priorities when they were on the Hill at the end of January? One was for accessible touchscreen interfaces, similar to Ray Campbell's point that he just raised on appliances, fitness equipment, and kiosks. A, another one was to revamp the Ability One program, but in doing so, to preserve the carve out and priority for Randolph Shepard. Um, and then they had a one that they added at the last minute, which was support of the Transformation to Competitive Employment Act to eliminate subminimum wages. If you guys have any issues to tomorrow, finding uh, the, the cafeteria, anything like that, shoot me an email. Again, cstanley at acb.org. I'll have my phone on me the whole time. I'll be checking it. Eric, final adieus. So, yeah, Claire, uh, Claire killed it, as they say. Um, it was a it was a baptism by fire, um, but you did great. Yes, I'm 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 getting to Ira. Hold on a sec. Got the ACB radio people all fired up about Ira. So, tomorrow, uh, tomorrow we are um, again very uh, grateful that IRA has agreed to light up the six buildings on Capitol Hill as uh, an, uh, one large access site for IRA users. So uh, the three buildings on the Senate side, Hart, Russell, Dirksen, and the three on the uh, House side. What? Did I say that right? No. Senate side. Yes, I did. All right, good. House side. Hey, uh, Rayburn, Longworth, and Cannon. I used to go there a lot. Uh, that was bottom to top, how I did that just then. Yeah. Um, those are the three. Again, Rayburn, house office building, cafeteria. That's on the basement level. You'll come in uh, into the, uh, you'll come up some stairs, go in through uh, what's sort of TSA-ish looking, a conveyor belt, go through a metal uh, de uh, metal detector, and then you're going to go up about 11 stairs or something like that, and you're going to hang a right. You're going to walk down a hall, and there'll be a T intersection. You'll take a left, and then on the right-hand side of that hallway, for most of that, uh, the length of that hallway is the Rayburn Cafeteria, and we'll be back closest to where that T intersection is in the cafeteria. And there'll be folks around, starting around uh, 8.30. Sharon Lovering will be there. 
uh, and uh, some volunteers, uh, Kelly and Claire and I will be here. And uh, we're going to decide where Clark's going to go. Uh, I, think, I think Clark will probably be there with Sharon. Uh, and then we'll be there for most of the rest of the day. Uh, folks, you know, in between meetings, please come back, hang out. Uh, you know, it's a good place to, to talk, to give uh, status reports to, to uh, myself, Clark, Claire, whoever's around. Again, Clark and Claire may wind up going out uh, on meetings with folks. Um, but again, please feel free to use IRA and check it out. Uh, the, the free service uh, to get a, a taste of it. Um, I wish when I was young in my career, I had Ira to <laughs> rely on when I was fumbling around getting lost young. all the time up there. <laughs> so, now I'm old. Yes, oh Claire loves to tell me I'm old. Yeah, see. When he was young. So, You're a baby, Eric. <laughs> anyway. Candidate for Grecian formula. <laughs> security? Uh, the security, all, all uh, basically, um, Put your headphones on, you, if you bring a bag with you, uh, you put it through the conveyor belt. You may, uh, you know, don't, don't, don't bring luggage. Don't bring your carry-on. Um, you know, if uh, you can bring a backpack, just don't stuff it full of eight pounds of stuff. Um, but yes, if you've got a laptop, you know, purse, uh, you know, uh, uh, other satchels, that's, that's all fine. The Capitol Police, by the way, uh, that man those uh, stations are incredibly helpful. Most of them are very nice. Uh, they can direct you to where you need to go. Uh, a lot of the office staff, if you get turned around, just walk in an office and ask for help. Most folks, most of the staff assistants at the door will point you in the right direction. The Braille, uh, the Braille can be a little unreliable up there, uh, but uh, just keep at it, and if there are things that we can do to be of assistance to you tomorrow, just let us know. Yeah. Why does everybody keep raising the microphone so high? <laughs> um, we just got a question. Nancy, let me know, and we'll we'll say it again. Um, there have been some individuals who want to pass out the hill drop flyers, but won't physically be going to those offices. So we'll make sure we'll email those out to you guys too. So check your email boxes. We'll just send it to everybody for simplicity's sake. All right, guys. Well, that is that is it from us. Uh, we'll be up here for a while. If you have any other questions, uh, if you want to offer to buy Claire a drink at the bar, I think she'd probably say yes. Um, but in all seriousness, uh, thank you so much for coming. Uh, it is not lost on us the amount of time and financial resources that you all are, are, are taking away from your families uh, to, to be here. Thank you so much, and let's go get them tomorrow.